0: The City's Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. We've had quite a run this week.
1: We have, and it's been, uh, although this is going to be released next week, uh, but it's our fourth one. So we're this cool. isn't happening now? It's not really happening. Wow. Now. Yeah. That's, it's, it's kind You just future, blew my mind. Yeah, we're, we're morphing into the future. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we've had four. This is our fourth podcast this week, so one of them will be released next week, this one. Uh, It's been a busy week here at the Naval Institute. We've got a new batch of uh, summer interns from the Naval Academy, which is terrific. Uh, We just came out of today our board of directors meeting, our quarterly board of directors meeting. Uh, One of the most uh, impactful decisions made was that the board has uh, elected to go forward with the uh, conference center project. So we've been talking about this a little bit, and our foundation has done an amazing job raising money for this Jack C. Taylor Conference Center the groundbreaking is going to be in mid-September here at the Naval Academy. Uh, there's a uh, inv- invitation will be going out to that pretty soon, uh, but it was a very big, momentous decision for the board today. A lot went into that from uh, our team and also. Uh, for the financial committee of the uh, of the board and uh, unanimous decision made to, hey, let's press ahead. This is a big opportunity and, a, and something that we need. Uh, and so we're very excited, other than the fact that we're going to start to have major pieces of machinery. Yeah, you we know, will right, be back to right there, the right? same yeah, we'll stuff be, we had last year, except be, worse. It'll be like living in the shipyards exactly. uh, for about a year That's and a half. And then it's going to be amazing, right? And then once it's launched, it's going to be a, a flagship. Game changer. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Speaking of the board, Uh, we have
0: a board member in the the space here in Studio B with us.
1: We do. Our guest today is Commander Guy Snodgrass, U.S. Navy retired. Uh, Guy was uh, a member of our editorial board. He's written for proceedings over the years um, and left the editorial board about a year ago and is now a member of the board of directors of the Naval Institute. So, Guy, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, so a lot, a lot is going on with your life. Uh, in you know, you transitioned in the in the last year. Um, uh, but tell our, our listeners a little bit about you. Graduated from the Naval Academy and and service selected flight and. You know how that all went for you.
2: Yeah, you bet. Thanks, uh, and thanks again for the opportunity to be here. I mean, I've listened to the podcast uh, for many episodes now, and I think you guys are doing a great service for your listeners. So thanks, thanks for doing we that. We made the
0: chinfo clips today. We did.
2: Congratulations! That was fantastic. Admiral yeah.
1: Carter's piece. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, to your point, uh, yes, I was a 1998 graduate from here in Annapolis, the U.S. Naval Academy. Had a chance during that time frame to be an exchange student at the Air Force Academy first semester. So well, a great opportunity well. to go to Colorado Springs. You got Hayes. Uh, A little bit, just Uh, a little bit. We don't call it that, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, shortly after graduation, went up to Cambridge, had an opportunity to do this immediate graduate education program, Uh, went up to MIT for two master's degrees. So that was a great experience to step outside of four years of being in uniform here in Annapolis, now see a purely civilian point of view, uh, challenge your your way of thinking at a young age, and then get right back into it, like you mentioned with flight school.
1: Pause for a second. We keep interviewing these whiz kids on the podcast yeah. who go right from here to these amazing grad school opportunities. Every
0: time we hear these, we get nosebleeds. We do. Right? It's like, <laughs> wow. Okay,
2: okay. Pause button. Stopped. Yeah, go ahead. There you go. So like you said, uh, flight school uh, wound up working my way through. Uh, once again, had a chance to – they started up something called the Joint Undergraduate Pilot Training Program. So I went to Enid Air Force Base, actually uh, did my first phase of pilot training in the T-37 uh, called the Tweet, which was an Air Force uh, jet. So I started off with jets from the start. Uh, worked my way through, became an F-18 pilot, uh, ultimately came to Virginia Beach for my J-O tour, did the uh, war cruise over in Iraq around the same time we were retaking Fallujah. Uh, at the conclusion of that tour, was selected to be a Top Gun instructor. So went to Fallon, Nevada for just over two years. And then uh, wound up doing two tours in Japan. The first one as a training officer, department head. Second one as the commanding officer of VFA 195, the Dam Busters. So, had an incredible command tour there with a great team. And then, interspersed in there, as you know, with the Navy and, and the Marine Corps, we always find ways to do broadening opportunities. So, the first one was after my department head tour, went to the Naval War College up in Newport, Rhode Island. I uh, got my third master's degree there. And then, kind of got on the radar of Admiral Christensen, who was a president, who recommended me to be. Admiral Jonathan Greenert, uh, the CNO's speechwriter, did that for a little over a year. And then after my command tour, I got selected to go work for uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and was his comms director and chief speechwriter for about a year and a half. Wow, small world! Obviously, yeah.
0: today you and Admiral Greener were in the same room. He's also on our board, so that's kind of cool. Again, it's like all roads point to the Naval Institute at some some level. Yeah, so
1: so Top Gun has been in the news a lot the last week as the uh, the trailer for Top Gun Two: Maverick has come out, and we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, so you were a Top Gun instructor. I was. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What what do most listeners or, or people who've just seen the movies, right, the, the Hollywood version of it, what don't they know about Top Gun and what that experience is like?
2: I would say that the biggest departure from what you see in the movie, which, of course, is a Hollywood production. It is a uh, all the glamour, all the excitement. And, of course, there's plenty of that when you're actually in the community and you're working in that kind of environment. But what they don't necessarily hammer down on is just the sheer professionalism. I mean, it's a profession in the truest sense of the word. Uh, it's a self-policing organization. It's only about 24, 25 people strong, mostly lieutenants, uh, some o 4s And then you have one, typically 0-5, who serves as the department head or commanding officer. But they don't have a heavy hand, if you will, in tactics development. It's all done by the lieutenants. So they direct the future of aviation or aerial warfare for both the Navy and the Marine Corps. So they come up with a standardization board. So, I mean, it's an incredibly professional organization. It's a lot of hard work and dedication to be able to get, uh, when I was there, it was four classes a year. I believe now it's three classes a year through that syllabus and through that pipeline because you're training the trainers for the fleet and you want to make sure that the product you're producing and the standards you're holding are incredibly high.
0: So just, again, for the unlearned in our broad listener base, um, the movie deals with Top Gun, the quote-unquote flying club around Miramar. Where it was basically a six-week thing, where two guys would go episodically during the turnaround training cycle, come back and give one lecture, and that was sort of the end of their responsibility. And then they got to wear the patch for the rest of their time in the flight suit. Moved to Fallon early '90s, if I rem- remember right, and became part of the NSOC community, mm-hmm. which it wasn't before. Um, became one of the direct. Is it N seven? Is that is yeah? That that's what right. N seven. Um, and and so at that point. Top Gun started to touch the fleet, not just the select among you. So the movie kind of deals with the mid-80s, which was my Cat 1 tour um, kind of vibe that was going on. Um, And what you served in is a much more comprehensive, dare I say, much more professional, although they were good, and it was hard to be an instructor back in those days. But when I think of when I was a department head and I was CAG Ops, dealing with Top Gun during... The Fallon turnaround. You know when you were doing um, air wing training, Top Gun was there talking to surface warfare guys that were going to be on you know Alpha Whiskey. You know the 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 air to, uh, surface to air uh, uh, ships, and you know it wasn't just for select fighter guys. You know, um, so what was you were talking a little bit about? You know a lot of professionalism, a lot of a lot of stuff. But really, what was it that? Back to Bill's question, in terms of how much subject matter expertise you had to have and what were the sort of methodologies that you learned there that have served you even in business construct after that?
2: Well, I think you just nailed it. Uh, There are so many lessons you learn, not only in a career in the Navy or in in one of the branches of military service, but certainly what I learned from Top Gun that carried carried through my entire career. But then also you can see the direct applicability to how I conduct business today out in the private sector. So when you think about what's required to be successful as a Top Gun instructor, they always break it down to three major bends: it's talent, passion, and personality. So you need to have a, at least meet a baseline level of talent in the aircraft um, so that you can be credible as you teach others and as you return to the fleet and instruct. Uh, the passion aspect speaks for itself. You have to love what you're doing. You have to be very passionate about wanting to subject yourself to uh, repeated. 12, 14, 16-hour days. I mean, there were uh, days during the syllabus where I would roll in at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, brief for your first flight. You'd fly an F-16, do red air. Then you'd come back land, grab a quick snack as you debrief, and then you're already going back into your next brief in an F-18 in order to do what we call a blue hop, which is the friendly forces. So then you come back, and then you sit through a five- to seven-hour debrief. And then, of course, by the time you finish that, it could be 10, 11 at night, and it's just enough time to do your grade sheet, go home, and then repeat the cycle the next day. So there's a lot of dedication that goes into it, a lot of passion required. And then the personality is a third major component, which is you can have the most talent and you can be very passionate about it. But if you don't have your the bedside manner, the ability to actually reach someone, be approachable, then you're going to push people away. And so we always wanted to make sure that the people we brought in to be Strike Fighter Tactics instructors, which are the broad base of individuals, like you mentioned, who get to wear the Top Gun patch, but also the instructors in particular, you want to make sure that they're approachable and someone you would want to go have a beer with so you could talk about uh, what you learned during the flight. The other things I think that really stand out, I mean, it's just the power of perseverance. Uh, the fact that uh, there are very few things in life that you can't achieve if you just really pour your heart and soul into it. Uh, I read a quote recently, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it was, One, the hardest thing to do is make a decision everything after that is just determination. So it's sticking with it and just moving forward. And I think Top Gun is a very good, just like other elite institutions throughout the military and throughout the the private sector, do a very nice job with that and finding people who have those talents. There are other things, real quick, just intangible, that I, I still use today. One of those is that we have, I mentioned we have about 24, 25, in this case, lieutenants who are running the joint. And The 10 most senior who've been there the longest, they form what's called the standardization board, the stand board. And they're the ones who actually will listen to new tactics, techniques, procedures, and then vote, thumbs up, thumbs down. Do we adopt it or do we stay with the status quo? What are we actually going to do for the entire Navy and Marine Corps? And you learn very early on that the last thing you want to do is walk into a meeting where they're going to make a decision. And that's the first time they've ever heard it. So I think if you've been around for long enough, it makes common sense. But when I was a lieutenant, it was a very empowering lesson to realize that, You socialized what you wanted to change a month ahead of time. You got all their concerns. You formed a basis of support. And then now when you went into the room, the actual vote was a given. You'd already done all your groundwork. And it was a very good lesson to learn as I moved through the remainder of my career about how you can build partnerships, how you can actually work with others to make sure that you address their concerns. You bring them in as part of the solution. Everyone's now happy with the direction you're going. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Did you also have to have subject matter expertise in a certain discipline as well. So for the classroom side of it, because you just sort of described the optempo during an airwing debt, where it's, you know, brief flight debrief, brief flight debrief. But on top of that, you, you had to be a lecturer, um, with with some credibility. That's that right. It takes a lot of time as well.
2: That's right. So in my case, uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. I'd, uh, like I mentioned, I had uh, some advanced degrees in math and science, so I think they saw me come through and said, this is the guy we want to be for what we call air-to-air mission planning. So that's the individual at Top Gun who's responsible for preserving and then building all of the aerial timelines that you use. So depending on the type of aircraft you're going to fight against, Uh, understanding their strengths or weaknesses. How do you defend against it? How do you actually uh, fly missions and succeed? Uh, And all of that goes back to our founding in 1969. So this is actually the 50th anniversary of this year. So uh, I was selected to be the air-to-air mission planning officer, like you mentioned. There's about six months of preparation that goes into that, where you're building your lecture. You take a look at what the subject matter expert before you had put together. You uh, determine as you talk with the other staff members where you need to go. In my case. It was an aggressive period of change. We basically changed all the previous tactics we'd had. We'd moved into a lot of new areas where we were fighting more advanced threats. And so I had a chance to work with a lot of our uh, intergovernmental agencies and intelligence community experts to determine what they were capable of, completely rechanged all of our aerial timelines and tactics, and then, of course, got that through the board. But it's a six-month process. There's eight pre-boards. Uh, my lecture alone was somewhere usually between three hours and 42 minutes and three hours and 48 minutes because you <laughs> practice it so much. You know exactly where you're going to be. And the thing that your listeners probably don't know about is it's completely memorized. So you are responsible for that six-month period. I think I had 236 slides and a lot of information on there, and you're not allowed to look at your slides once. It's called a slide peek. They'll mark you for it. If you do more than just a few during that four-hour period, then you fail and you got to repeat. Wow. So by the end of that process, as you can imagine, I mean, you know it inside, outside. And it's and it's great because you really are now the Navy and Marine Corps subject matter expert. You can speak with authority not only to the classes, but when you're asked to go to the fleet concentration areas or or talk with others about that aspect of naval aviation, you know what you're talking about.
0: Does Top Gun Journal still exist?
2: It does. It's called the Insoc Journal. It's probably the Nautic oh, Journal NSOC. now. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. So it's a classified pub, right? So that's why nobody out here has probably that's right. heard about it. Um, So that was a big must read thing. You'd have to, you know, check it out and just read it in a classified space type of thing. But it was pure gouge. Right. It came out quarterly, I think, back in the day. That sounds
1: Mm -hmm. right. I'm curious, back to, uh, so you were there in the early 2000s?
2: I was actually there from uh, 2006 to 2008.
1: Okay. and you. So at that time, the U.S. is fighting two wars, Southeast or Southwest Asia, right? So we're Afghanistan over Iraq. There is no air-to-air threat at that time, Mm -hmm. right? But you said, we're facing uh, a higher threat or a new threat. And so the tactics changed at that time. So were you guys already top gunned? already thinking ahead to peer competition, already thinking ahead to fourth and fifth generation fighters that the Chinese and the Russians were
2: building? Absolutely. Uh, we were easily, you know, as you've seen, a decade ahead of where the national defense strategy ultimately went when it was released in January of 2018. So, yes, we recognize, you know, you have uh, what you called your Um, threat nations of interest is how we characterized it. And it was various nations that you knew had a good aerial capability, in in my case as the air-to-air mission planning officer, but they had a very good capability and they were nations that you wanted to make sure that you could uh, still maintain a competitive advantage against. Because of course, at the end of the day, you want diplomacy to lead the way. But at the end of the day, if you need to actually enter into a conflict, you want to make sure that you can succeed with overwhelming capability. And so that was our role is to make sure that we could Uh, Bring that to bear if required.
1: Gotcha. As an intel guy who went to Fallon a number of times with carrier air wings and strike groups and and squadrons, uh, and now we're working on a package for the September issue of proceedings in honor of the 50th anniversary of Top Gun. And I've read some chapters now of the Alt Report, which was uh, a review of air-to-air tactics and and, uh, how the Navy was doing early days of Vietnam during Operation Rolling Thunder one of the things that was in the ALT report was this recommendation that there needed to be an objective ability to debrief, right? So there needed to be a school to do advanced air-to-air training, but you needed to be able to do objective debrief, which meant you needed to be able to reconstruct what happened in a a dogfight or in in an engagement, right? So out at Fallon, you have these ranges and you have tax pods, I remember them called, and the tax range, and you could go in and you could reconstruct what happened, where aircraft were, altitude, and you could view it in different perspectives. Talk a little bit about that technology and how that enables students to learn how to be advanced tacticians. One thing
2: you learn very quickly, uh, even as a guy going through the uh, fleet replacement squadron, where you first learn how to, in my case, fly the F-18, is that when you're moving 600 miles an hour, things happen incredibly fast. And what you think you remember happening is not necessarily what the truth was. And so what you're describing, the tax range, the ability to record flight data, and then subsequently after you've landed, you've taken off your flight gear and you're now ready to debrief. You can display that. And so in your mind, and I've had situations where I feel absolutely convicted that I believe what happened. And then you see it for yourself and say, wow, that is not at all. And so the importance there is, one, to recognize that you made a mistake, the way you characterize it. But more importantly, is just to learn that that's part of that process so that when you're in flight – Uh, You can start to recognize where maybe, you know, we have scan patterns, ways of operating within the aircraft. Where are those high task loading periods of time? And then how do you slow it down so that you can actually uh, stay focused, you can have recall? Uh, And that's one of the things top gun instructors do focus on is the ability to, for example, when we fight basic fighter maneuvers, or the Air Force might call it ACM, air combat maneuvers, is to be able to go airborne, do an entire flight against a more senior top gun instructor, you come back, and then from complete recall, you can't look at tapes initially, you you draw up on the whiteboard. Here's exactly what I believe happened with the right cardinal headings, everything else. And uh, the first few times you do it, you realize you could be wildly off. But as you bring that in as something you have to focus on, you get better and better. And so when I returned back to the fleet, both as a training officer, department head, commanding officer, I found that you could prevail in most air-to-air engagements and and certainly in dogfighting. And, and your junior officers would look at you and say, man, skipper is good. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, but it's not because I have any kind of magic capability. It's just a lot of exposure, a lot of experience, a lot of repetition. And you just learn as you do that uh, how you can use things to your advantage.
0: So when you left Top Gun, um, what did you do immediately after? Is that when you went to a war college?
2: No, uh, immediately after Top Gun is when I went to Japan for my first tour. And I was a combination training officer and department head in a squadron called VFA-102, the Diamondbacks in Japan.
0: I was a department head in VF-102, the Diamondbacks. Not in Japan, <laughs> at Oceana. Um, so very well. But then you just stayed there as a new screen during a department head tour and wound up being in that same air wing as a skipper, ex-OCO. Uh,
2: so uh, somewhat. I was there as a training officer uh, working for the greatest leader I ever served So with. is it like a
0: super JO tour then?
2: Uh, Somewhat. So everybody who goes through Top Gun owes a, they have something called a remain, which is an agreement to remain on active service for a period of time. So when you become a Top Gun instructor and you get the patch, same thing as a test pilot, you need to do at least another tour or two. So in my case, training officer at VFA 102, while I was there, I was selected for department head. So I was asked to remain in the same squadron as a department head. And then after that is when I came back and w- was uh, sent to the Naval War College.
0: Okay. So s- speaking about training officers, so another element of the modern top gun that's different than the movie era top gun is is that, the, the strike fighter weapons training instructor. So yes, you were a top gun instructor, so you're a natural fit for being training officer. But isn't the current SWIFTY program also designed to create sort of a subspecialty with the grads who wind up being training officers in, in squadrons?
2: Yes, absolutely. So uh, great point for your listeners. You have uh, one, you could say, is at the bottom of the triangle, right? It's Top Gun. It's in Fallon, Nevada. And that's where you have a, a small corps of instructors whose sole job, beyond just creating the tactics we use in the Navy Marine Corps, is to take a s- somewhat small group of strike fighter tactics instructors. You bring them through the course. You you teach them. Because the it's longer it's- now than it was back that's in right. the right? I believe right? it's up to about 12 weeks. Yeah. When I was there, it was about nine and a half weeks. So you – you get them through that course, and then they're the ones primarily who are just coming through and then going straight out to be training officers. They'll go teach at a weapons school first, typically. Uh, for the F/A-18. there's one on the West Coast in more California, another place on the East Coast uh, over in Oceania, Virginia. So those are the two major fleet concentration areas where we have a majority of our F-18 squadrons. They will teach there as a weapons school instructor. They continue to gain in their skill set. They get to know the fleet squadrons. They're the direct representatives to the fleet. And then just like a top gun instructor, when they're complete, then they go out as a training officer.
0: So what was the carrier, was it the GW both times, or what was the carrier in Japan?
2: So the very first time I got there as a training officer, it was the Kitty Hawk, the last conventionally powered aircraft carrier. And then we took it and did what's called a hold swap. We took it from Japan over to San Diego and spent about a month there moving everything from one carrier to the new one, which was the USS George Washington. It's right after it had the fire, so it still needed some more uh, work done. I remember that. We brought it back to Itsugi, and then, of course, when I came back as a executive officer, and then commanding officer. Actually, my, my second full day as a commanding officer, we did another whole swap where we changed from the George Washington to the Ronald Reagan. Okay.
0: Wow. That's a lot of entropy. So what, what jumps out at you about the CO tour? What, you know, we look back, what were some of the high points?
2: I think the number one thing is that it's a privilege. It really is. Uh, when I when you when you kind of look at the maturation that occurs, the way your thought process changes from a JO to a commanding officer. I mean, it's a it's a significant shift, I believe, in how you perceive your service, how you perceive uh, what you're doing for the sailors you lead, for the nation. When I was a JO, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, there were a lot of things I was I felt very self-centered about. Hey, what you know? How does this affect me? What's happening? And I and I always told people that the department tour was great because it's when it went from being about me to being about we suddenly now you're in a significant position of responsibility. You have multiple officers under your care. You have multiple senior chiefs and chiefs and enlisted personnel all working in your department. And so you really realize, man, this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with how do you best take care of them. And so you take those lessons, and then you become an executive officer. And in naval aviation, you typically fleet up to become the commanding officer. And it's that it's turbocharged on steroids. It's great because you really understand the positive impact you can have as a commanding officer and as an executive officer. I mean, you – when I worked for Admiral Greener, we went to the Naval War College and he gave kind of a small sit down to the class of rising executive officers and commanding officers. And one of the things he said that had always stuck with me is that never forget as a commanding officer that you are creating your sailors reality, how you treat them, how you approach them. If you care for them, you don't. That's for many of them, that's all they know about the Navy because you're their first point of entry. So just remember that because you, what you say matters. And I thought about that a lot as a commanding officer. So. Uh, to your point, I mean the high points. Goodness gracious, we were in Japan. Embarrassment of riches. You had all the funding, all the flight hours you needed. You typically had. I know right now there's a lot of uh, shortfalls, both in material and in funding, and in some cases with sailors who were available for home squadrons. We did. We you know we had the luxury of not necessarily having that problem overseas. We had great sailors. And uh, we were just at sea a lot. So you got a chance to actually learn and understand the Indo Pacific, all the things that we've now shifted to, and that I worked uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense to help with with the National Defense Strategy. Uh, all that shift was occurring, and we, we were there for it. We got to see it real time.
1: Did you guys interact with uh, the Chinese Air Force or Chinese uh, Navy at all in your time in Seven Fleet?
2: It was not a deliberate interaction. Uh, it wasn't where we had any kind of a, you know, uh, Milpers exchange or any kind of cooperative uh, stuff that I was involved with. I'm sure there might have I – mean, I suspect there was someone maybe on the surface warfare side of the house with uh, ship drivers. But for us, I mean, the interaction was typically airborne when that, you're intercepting and es- that, escorting. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. You bet. And this Your, was right around the time. We, uh, we actually in chopped. we went into the South China Sea right around the time of the International Court of Arbitration ruling uh, on behalf of the Philippines against the China. The, with regards, that's where, right. With yep. regards to China's claim that there's this uh, nine dashed lines that occur where they say that we own all this territory. Everything that falls within it. And It's a pretty sweeping, broad grab for a lot of ocean space. And uh, so they've moved us in because they expected there might be a rising potential for some sort of conflict. And we were right around all the contested uh, shoals, like you just mentioned, and islands, Fiery Cross and others. Uh, So, yeah, there was a lot of elevated uh, air traffic, and we had to do some intercept and escort.
1: Any unprofessional activity? Not that I saw. Okay, gotcha. So uh, you finish your command tour. You end up uh, briefly at Oceana. Uh, and then you get called from uh, Secretary Mattis to come up, and suddenly you go from the tactical sphere uh, as a as a commanding officer of a tactical unit, and and you're thrust into the strategic realm. What's that like?
2: I would tell you, if I hadn't had the previous tour with Admiral Greener, it would have been very jarring. Uh, luckily, it was a great experience, and an, even though it was a primarily Navy structure, because it was within the Department of the Navy, certainly working for the Chief of Naval Operations. But I mean, it I mean, it's fascinating because the perspective, the concerns, where your focus on, is on is is drastically different than the things you're focused on as a lieutenant or as a petty officer or you know, up to a commanding officer. I mean, you, you are focused on the effective uh, management and leadership of your organization, and that's largely where you spend your time. And suddenly now, to your point, you're in the Pentagon. You're thinking about the most strategic of issues. You're looking at how do we interact with and help uh, lead NATO uh, with Section Stoltenberg? Or how do you go over to India with uh, the S- Minister of Defense, uh Sederaman, and sit down and talk about uh, the growing partnership that exists between America and, and the world's largest democracy? I mean, so there's a lot of those. And it was fascinating, because it's certainly in the role I held, uh, you could say you were basically a mile wide and an inch deep. I mean, you knew just enough to be dangerous, but it was phenomenal, because you're looking at all the different aspects, whether it's uh, talent management and retention—that you know I'm, I've been passionate about for years—or it's what does the future force design look? Not just for the Navy, but for the entire U.S. military. How do we interop- interoperate with allies and partners? What are we doing about the major competition that's rising around the world? How do we shift from terrorism to that com- to that strategic competition? Um, so it's just something that when I'd been here at the Naval Academy, there was a gentleman who used to teach here named Captain Mark Hagarot and I believe he's a chancellor up at a college now in mm-hmm. the uh, Midwest. But he, he was great. He had worked with a lot of senior leaders. He had been a White House fellow previously. And one thing he had shared with me back when I was a senior lieutenant was the Navy's an interesting and most of the military services are interesting because as a lieutenant or as a junior personnel, officer or enlisted, you're expected to be very focused tactically on what you're, what you're doing. And then all of a sudden you hit the point where you're an E6-E7 or you're a five 05-06 and suddenly your service wants you to be as broad as possible. They want you to know about, a lot about a lot of things. And the danger is is that, is that you're late to make that transition. So the sooner you can start to think about those things and you can start to incorporate them into just – you don't even have to spend a lot of time thinking about them. But you just you, you just know that they exist and you, and you know where to find the resources. And suddenly when you are in those very big strategic positions, you have people you can reach out to, organizations you can reach out to, which is very empowering.
1: So you – Wrote for uh, for Secretary Mattis. You wrote his speeches. You traveled with him, all over the world. We had August Cole and Wendy Anderson on the podcast last week. Uh, this talk, week, this week, last week. <laughs> it's been a long week. Yeah, talking about uh, their recent article, the Secretary of Hyperwar, which is uh, you know a a Secretary of Defense. Focus scenario in, in a war scenario in the late 2020s against a peer competitor uh, and the, the overwhelming amount of information that a secretary of defense has to, uh, you know, digest and make decisions on 24-7. Uh, so you saw Secretary Mattis, and, and many would say, I think, that uh, probably one of the, the best secretaries of defense we've had. Uh, what was his op-tempo like? Uh, as you worked with him?
2: No, I think that's a great question. I want to take it in a more broad uh, construct. Uh, you know, I'm very lucky. I've got a book coming out this fall, and I'm going to reserve a lot of the discussion of, of what it was like working alongside Mattis for that time. So I'd love to come back and talk to you about it. But in general, you're right. There's a there's a retired Marine Corps General, John Allen, who's currently leading Brookings Institute, and I've been in uh, several meetings with him over the past two years, where he also, and that's where I at least first heard about hyperwar. war, uh, and it brings in this concept of whether it's uh, extreme velocity projectiles in the kinetic sense or whether it's uh, cyber war. I mean, there's so many things that can just move so fast. And that's gonna that, that starts leading you certainly down the road towards not only automation, but also artificial intelligence, machine learning. How do you bring uh, different elements to bear that can help you make those rapid decisions? And we're seeing this with other strategic competitors who are also looking at the space. They want to train up algorithms. They want to be able to uh, find that competitive edge for potential future conflicts should we find ourselves there. And it's very, it's presenting us with a very interesting thought problem because people have looked at for years, what are the ethical dilemmas around AI? But it's not even just the ethical dilemma, it's, just, it's the fact that you're going to find yourself at some point giving a lot of control over to an algorithm and you may not understand completely how that algorithm is working. What's it making its decisions based off of? It's bringing in a lot of inputs uh, and it's going to put us in a very unique inflection point here. Uh, it could be next year. It could be five years. But at some point, there's going to have to be a conscious decision made, I'm sure, by a giant collective of individuals who are much smarter than we are to say this is how much control we want to hand over and this is what it should look like.
1: Yeah, well, at the, I mean, this, this has been written about by a number of people, including General Allen and Amir Hussein in proceedings. Uh, this idea of hyper war and the speed of war and the speed of decision that's going to have to come uh you know whether you're uh commanding officer of a DDG out in the South China Sea and suddenly there's 19 uh, anti-ship cr- you know cruise missiles or ballistic missiles coming at you and, and can a human being particularly if those are coming at you at hypersonic speeds or even supersonic speeds h- how can you prioritize that many threats that are coming at you at mathematical speeds and which weapons do you engage and when At some point, you got to let a machine make those decisions, right? And and what's the right balance between the human in the loop and the human out of the loop? It's really it's challenging. Mm -hmm. So uh, multiply that to the strategic level, and then you've got the Secretary of Defense who's got all these different things to to balance. And I think that's what uh, August and Wendy were getting at: is like you're going to need a superhuman being surrounded by superhuman beings with AI helping to make those those level of decisions. It's, you bet. it's and, fascinating.
2: And and you think back to even, what was it now, 10 years ago with, uh, I believe it was Hurricane Katrina, and uh, Admiral Thad Allen from the Coast Guard was the one responsible uh, in heading up the disaster relief and humanitarian aid mission. And I remember reading an article where he had said, man, I'm getting like 300 text messages in the course of an hour or two. I mean, it's just – and you think about where that was a decade ago and how that was task-saturating. So it's the same thing you're bringing up. I mean, there's going to be so many different – not only so many pieces of information, but different types of information that are all flooding you at once. How do you handle that?
1: That's a great point. So, uh, Guy, you are within Navy circles, particularly at sort of our rank and below, famous for a uh, 2014 – I think it was 2014 Naval War College review – uh, article that was, uh, a retention study. It was called keep a weather eye on the horizon, Navy officer retention study. So whenever I'm talking to people, proceedings authors, and I say, you know, Guy Snodgrass, and they go, Oh yeah, he wrote that retention study. Uh, so 2014 you're at the, at the war college and you're, you're looking at retention problems that are coming at the Navy. Right. Uh, and now it's five years later. And a lot of these things are starting to multiply, even though, uh, as we've heard from Mick Pond Smith, uh, first-term retention for enlisted sailors in the Navy is at an all-time high, which is almost uh, an oxymoron given where the uh, where the economy is right now. You know, national unemployment being 3.5% or so, normally that would portend really bad retention. But on the enlisted side right now, it's 75%, uh, 80% uh, first-term retention, which is miraculous, really. Uh, but But tell us some of those key factors and what you recommended in your retention study.
2: Oh wow! Well, I want to give credit where credit's due. Twenty fourteen, when the article first came out, um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the genesis. But it was actually first published by Proceedings, or excuse me, by uh, the Naval Institute. So it had been a one-on-one white paper. Uh, slight change in the timeline. I had to actually finished up with. Um, my tour with Admiral Greenert. So I'd had a chance to kind of see the information he was reviewing with what's called the health of the force. This is a product that the chief of naval personnel would send to the chief of naval operations to talk about exactly what you said. How does retention look? Uh, What are all the different factors driving the health of the force? And so I got a chance to see those updates. And when I was... uh, going through the fleet replacement squadron to be retrained in the F-18 prior to going back as an executive officer. Uh, I was touring around the country as you do different training stops, and Admiral Moran, who was chief of naval personnel at the time, came to see us at uh, Pensacola, Florida, and he just mentioned, "Man, here are some of the challenges I'm facing. If anybody's got any bright ideas, I'd love to hear them. You know, send them directly to me." And so I was probably that obnoxious guy in the in the audience. He said, "Oh, great, let's take this," and I'd already been thinking about it for two years. And while I was at the War College, I'd, I'd talked to a lot of friends and actually done some semi-formal exit interviews, people talking about their experiences, what they saw, what they were seeing in their neck of the woods. And so I did that on my own during uh, my time in Pensacola and a little bit beyond. I wound up putting together a 20-some-odd you know, page white paper that was intended just for Admiral Moran. I sent it to him. He said, got it, thanks. And uh, I thought, well, that's that. I'm on, I'm on my way doing other stuff. And evidently uh, so an individual at, at uh, the – Bureau of personnel had said, I'd like to see it. And then it starts floating around a little bit. And I, I know exactly how it happened because there was a naval aviator whose name I'll withhold. But he had been the executive assistant for a two-star admiral in Norfolk and said, oh, my gosh, this guy just basically slayed some sacred cows and is kind of calling it like we're all seeing it. And he starts shooting it around to his buddies at our level, like around the 0405 level. And uh, next thing you know, it's it's gone viral. And the next that was on a Friday that I sent Admiral Moran. The next Tuesday, I'm walking in the parking lot of a uh, of the commissary over at Oceana, uh, Naval Air Station Oceana, and a buddy pulls up in his truck I'd seen for years, and I was like, great paper, man, that thing was great. I'm like, how is this getting out? Well, the
0: first time you and I spoke when I was the editor of military.com, and I was That's in right. Virginia Beach, right. and we were trying to connect because I was going to do an article about That's this right. thing. I mean, it was having like mainstream media play. You know, it's not just general circles of mm-hmm. the Bubbas. I mean, it was when you say viral, it really was viral.
2: Yeah. And, and look, that gets back to something that I've been passionate about. And I know that there are many others. It's not just me. There's many people who uh, wear the cloth of our country who are passionate about when you – we're all really good throughout our careers at identifying problems. Uh, we do it whether you're in a wardroom or in a ready room or in the mess decks. I mean, you kick up your feet and you just start complaining about the stuff that you see on a, on a recurring basis. And why doesn't someone fix this? And what I think I've identified that I really appreciate is when you see the individuals who say, you're right – there's something that's systemic. Let's do some research. Let's find out why we are where we are. What what led to these decisions? Uh, so you can evaluate, you know, is it still applicable for the current day? And then what would be the recommendations? Don't just identify a problem and then tell senior leadership that they're wrong. You know, provide solutions, provide thoughts about uh, ways that they could get after the problem and give them some solutions. And so like Bill just mentioned, that was kind of the uh, the period on the, of the end of the white paper were uh, something like 11, 12, 13 recommendations that I'd sent to Admiral Moran, and it was great. Over the course of about a year or two years, you actually saw almost every single one of those get implemented, whether it was ret- bringing back the commanding officer bonus or communicating you know, Navy top-line messages to the fleet. I mean, they just started coming in. So
0: let, to Bill's framing of the question, let, let's be deliberate about what the issues were that you teed up. Mm-hmm. Um in 2014 and then how you, to your eye they've some of them have been solved because you had things about flight our funding you had things about you know oh five uh you know guys sticking around post command you had things about um jail retention so what were the and again not we don't need to do a, a no, close yes. reading of the entire paper but very sort of briefly what were the elements that that were the 2014 study and and where have we where, where, is, where is, has the trajectory been sure. s- since then?
2: So, I, I think the best way to capture it for your listeners is that uh, I remember watching a movie called The Perfect Storm, based on a book by Sebastian Younger, and you know it talks about the three major events uh, or weather patterns coming together. And they formed a superstorm that, of course, had some pretty devastating effects. And I felt the same way. It's, as I had talked for years with friends who were working at the Navy Personnel Command, right? So they're seeing the truth data. They understand what's really happening. And the message that Admiral Greenert in this case was getting routinely was, there are some challenges, but overall things are great. And that's not what the lieutenant commanders, commanders, lieutenants at the Navy Personnel Command were saying. They were talking to the individuals and the members in the fleet saying, that is not the So reality. who's
0: delivering that message? His staffers? I well, mean, how look, is he getting that message? Look, listen, I mean, I not No, can't. I don't put the who in it, but I mean, what—, what? How is, how is the CNO getting that, that message?
2: You know, I, I, I can say I watched this happen because now I'm aware of that process. I, I watched uh, elements like that happen when I worked with Secretary Mattis, right, where every – and I don't think it's a nefarious purpose. It's every rung along the way, right, as you report up to your boss, okay, let's take a little bit of the hard edges off. Here you go. And let's take some more of the hard edges off, and that's how something that could be drastically killing readiness or really hurting sailors, airmen, marine uh, at the lower level, suddenly hits a service secretary. And it's like you know what, things are pretty good, and everyone's happy. Two thumbs up. Um, <laughs> so lip- I
1: w- lipstick on the pig. So I had watched signature. that. That's right. I'd right. yeah. watched that with Emma, human nature
2: with Greenert, and I I felt compelled by it. And so because of the inputs I were receiving, and I and I was thinking of it to your point. Look, there's a lot of factors from our past, the high op tempo, which we also talked about in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. You know, at that point, it was 17 years of continuous warfare uh, in the war on terror. So you had this high op tempo, all the things that led up to the factors in the past that had worn the fleet out and people were tired. So we went
0: from six-month cruises to 10 months as the standard, right? right. That kind of thing. uh, Seven and a half months. months. That's right.
2: We had the metrics to track it. I don't think it routinely got up that high. But- so you had you had the reasons from the past. You had the reasons that were currently affecting the, the fleet. But then as you – and this was two years before the economy improved. I mean this is before a lot of those right. things had changed.
1: During sequestration. And,
2: right. And it didn't take a rocket scientist, I felt, to say, well, you know, we are where we are right now. But two years, three years from now, things are getting better and we're seeing this cliff where not only are people going to start leaving because things look more attractive outside potentially than they do inside – uh, but we've already, because of sequestration, continuing resolutions, and other budgetary measures, we've already started to constrain how many people we're bringing in. So you already have a lack of supply and you have a growing demand on the outside. They're going to be pulling people out. Yeah. You, uh, so you, you can call it out the force. You, you, well, you're stretched tight. Yeah. You're stretch tight. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, what were a couple of the recommendations that you saw? Uh, that resonated with senior leaders, it resonated with uh, with CNO Greenert uh, and and it got implemented.
2: Sure. So I think the the way I wanted to structure it, having seen how things, again, at Top Gun were successful and how you can actually uh, sway people you've never met. So it was everything from let's shoot for the moon, tougher to implement, uh, policy proposals. To the easiest, and one of the easiest ones. Uh, two of the easiest ones I proposed. One was uh, right now all the, and this is back in 2014, but all the information flow to commanding officers, master chiefs, and others was on the pool method, right? You had to search it out yourself. You didn't really know what was going on at higher headquarters, uh, so unless you looked for it, you weren't necessarily going to know what the current, to put it in a polite term, talking points were for the Navy, like what the Navy was talking about. And so one of the recommendations was for the commander or commander of naval personnel to now push out a recurring, like, you know, in this case, it turned into a weekly. Here are the top five items I'm tracking. Here are the things you should know about. A nav admin that came out or something like an announced change. So be aware of this. So that got implemented. The other one that uh, was a very quick kill was it had been as silly as it might sound. It had actually caused some unnecessary heartache in aviation communities because they had they had directed that. All the squadrons that had tr- traditionally had unique patches, colored T-shirts, et cetera, you know, you had that pride and esprit de corps, uh, were all going to black T-shirts or navy blue T-shirts, and it's across the fleet, so everyone looks exactly the same. And and it it mean, sounds silly, uh, but unless you've lived it, and when you live it and you take a lot of pride well, in, in big, your squadron. Yeah. And so that was one of them was just bring back organizational clothing, bring back ship ball caps, bring back some of the things that had been removed so that we all looked uniform and and uh the same. And so they implemented that almost right away where they removed that restriction. So that was a great one. The ones that probably took a little bit longer time were things like bringing back the commanding officer bonus. I knew the discussion that was happening at, at the, in this case, PERS 43 with the Navy Personnel Command. That's the aviation component. And they were looking for justification for reasons to be able to bring back the commanding officer bonus. Because you had something called a pay inversion where your department heads who were on a bonus were making more money than your executive officers and commanding officers who had far more responsibility. And it it was one of those, what signal are you sending to them? But what signal do you send to your junior officers about what your career path could look like? And where does the the Navy put its emphasis on leadership? So uh, that ultimately got implemented. And then more recently, the one that I had a few friends reach out and say, this is great, thanks, was the uh, making career milestones more competitive. Uh, So the way the Navy has operated for a long time is that – the three of us could be all moving together in naval aviation. We're the same rank. We graduated the same day from from college, and so we're all moving lockstep, and maybe Ward gets selected for command, and I don't, uh, but you know what? I graduated 100 places ahead of you in college, so therefore I'm going to promote four months before you. Uh, so it was, hey, bring that competitive aspect back in. If Ward was good enough to get the number one paperwork as a department head, he's got all the great performance reviews, and he's going to be a commanding officer, then he should absolutely move to the head of the list and promote before I would.
1: This is truly a farcical example. <laughs> yeah, because we all went to an un-college. <laughs> well, he's... <been laughs> I, not, so, I, I like it. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we're hearing from a, a, a few authors, and one in particular just comes to mind, Tony Kahansky, lieutenant now in the reserves, who is a, a Hornet pilot, growler pilot, and uh, was an instructor pilot. And, and he's written a lot about aviation retention and about the problems that are... That, that continue right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things is uh, that the av that the airlines, the civilian airlines, are have this huge hiring need now because all of the guys uh, who went into the airlines from the military during the Vietnam period and the years maybe the decade after Vietnam are now aging out as airline pilots. And so they have a need to hire airline pilots and they're hiring fast, right? So that's a huge demand signal. Is that one of those perfect storm pieces? Yes, yes, yes absolutely.
2: Right. Uh, you raised from 60 to 65, the mandatory retirement age. And so you had a whole swath of tens of thousands of commercial aviation pilots who were able to stick around and then they were now aging out. And so yeah. you're right, it was going yeah. to create a demand. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: plus nine eleven sort of you know put a little stop to mm-hmm. the the hiring and the the number of the manpower of each each uh, company and that's now not an issue anymore so right. it's sort of like the late 80s early 90s are back again yep. in terms of that option for for uh, naval aviators
1: yeah so one of the things that tony has recently written is that now it's been a, several years i think it's 3 or 4 years running where the department head screen board for VFA and VAQ has essentially taken 100 percent or maybe even more than 100 percent of those that are up for department head, if mm-hmm. I'm saying that correctly, right? So if you're, if you're a lieutenant, senior lieutenant, and you are, um, y- you know, able to do the job uh, as a VFA or VAQ department head, you will screen for department head. And a lot of those guys don't take it or don't stay in. And so they're they're pulling Hornet guys into the VAQ community, or they're making more department heads who are backseaters in you know the two-seat squadrons or in the VAQ. So it, it continues to be a problem. Uh, any any thoughts? What are you hearing from your contemporaries on you know o four o five aviation
2: retention? So it's it's not only continued to be a problem; the problem has grown significantly worse. Even when I was a, around the time I was a department head uh, back in, I guess that would be what, 2010, 11 time frame, we were already short department heads. And to your point, it's called selectivity. Um, so there's this principle that it, say you had a hundred lieutenant commanders selected in, in a VFA squadron, four, four lieutenant commander, that's your pool now who gets to compete for department head. Maybe you need 39. That's great. That means you have a lot of selectivity. You can select the best... You know, whatever metrics you're using, you can argue what's best, but you select uh, the highest ranked 39 individuals to go on and be offered the opportunity to be a department head. When you go to to 0% selectivity, when you need 49 department heads and you only have 49 or fewer, uh, then you have to take whoever has 98.6 in a pulse and is breathing. So that's where we've been. And it's not been one year or two years. It's been sustained for years. And so they did several years back around the time I was an executive officer, commanding officer. This was maybe three, four years ago what they started determining extraordinary measures. It's where you extended everyone to their maximum tour length. You started to just play with everything you could to take out that slack so that you could make up for the shortfall in department heads. And then the the shortfall has continued. It's actually accelerated in some communities. And so now you just don't have the bodies. And uh, so again, perfect storm, you lack the bodies to adequately man a squadron in some cases to be able to produce who you need and the fleet replacement squadrons to train to train the brand new individuals coming in and then you combine that of course with the shortage of materiel and equipment and supplies and that's another thing I would I would share with your listeners that is a common misperception and this is where it's very tough for senior leadership whether you're civilian or military to effectively communicate with congress because for example, when uh, when senior leaders say that I need more funding or here's what I'm wanna, I want to do to rebuild readiness, and Congress says, I hear you, here's an extra $50 billion for the year, thank you so much, there's a natural belief that as soon as you've done that, readiness just improved, everything's good. But it doesn't. It continues to slide downhill. It could be six months, a year, several years. And I think we're seeing that right now where – Uh, Readiness continued to be challenged because you can't overnight continue. You can't just produce more struts for landing gear or replacement canopies for the aircraft. I mean, there's there. It takes time and it takes sustained effort, sustained funding. So you combine all those factors together, and it's it's a bit challenging right now. So the
0: the other thing that comes to mind are the second and third order effects of this phenomenon, where everybody or you don't even have enough bodies to fill the quotas, is so. Let's just say that that you probably don't have 100% of the talent pool. So, you know, as you were describing, you know, you're a great uh, ACM driver, you get aboard. you know, you're a good flight lead. So your nugget pilots are looking at you and going, yeah, if he says go, I'm going. And if it's, and I've seen this. So, you know, in in my first squadron, you weren't getting, uh, even in the F-14 community, to a man, uh, it wasn't the best of the best, right? And so as a Rio, I got some of the hard cases and, and so forth and so on. But when if those guys are all sort of just because the numbers demand it, being department heads and then screening, if I'm a JO and I look at the pool, it starts to be a morale issue, and, a re- and then in turn the third order consequence is a retention issue, right? So th- this is a big deal, right? I mean, God bless all of them and thank all of you for your service, but you know this this does have, as you say, there's a bow wave, where the the dynamic will affect readiness you know, five, ten years down the road.
1: You bet. Well, and the other thing that, that uh, Tony brings up uh, in some of his papers is that, you know, with that $50 billion, yeah, you can't make extra canopies and struts immediately. It's not going to change overnight. But within six months, maybe a year or so, okay. uh, th- that can change, right? You, mm-hmm. can, you can increase the spare parts. You know, your bins are full and you've got – You know, you you have more flight hours. You got money to fly and stuff, but you don't have the pilots to do it, right? So you're trying to execute a flight schedule with uh, fewer pilots, uh, or you're trying to train fewer. You've got fewer pilots who are mid grade, who are then going to Pensacola or Meridian to fly. You know, to train the new pilots, and so making a making a pilot making a JO or super JO who is up for department head tour. Uh, that's what a seven year, eight year, 10 year commitment, right? So this is, this is a long time fix. Well, I mean, what what I'm talking about,
0: Roger that, that's the numbers I'm talking about, let's just call it a charisma quotient, Mm -hmm. a referent influence quotient. So when I was a JO, in fact, my debut novel is based on the ire of my first tour, right? And so that book is basically about, is punk going to stand or get out? You know, Mm -hmm. his, his, his CEOs, you know, um, in, in a fictional form is, is not a terribly nice guy. Um, you know, soup Campbell. Um, and so this isn't based on any one person. It's based of sort of the atmospherics of that era. And so the year groups that when I was a, a J.O. in my, my Nugget tour were the Vietnam era year groups. So it, this is a very subjective assessment. But um, at that time, it was not cool to be in the U.S. Navy, even if you were flying fighters. Right. So the, the people who wanted to be in phase with, with pop culture and the things that were sort of in keeping with the American experience probably got out. And so the guys left behind are the ones that were the year group, and you had to screen somebody and so forth and so on. So if you looked up and down the flight line, uh, you know, in the early to mid 80s and to a man, and, you know, or to a man down the to 12 Tomcat squadrons we had, two of them were probably the kind of guys that you'd be like, awesome dude, high five. The rest were like notorious bastards. And so this is what I'm talking about in terms of the charisma quotient. So readiness, all those guys, all my uh, – my, the pilots that I flew with all got out and flew for the airlines, right? You can look at the, the picture, uh, the flight deck picture on the USS John F. Kennedy and go, where are they now? It wasn't like this – this franchise that they all went on, like I'm thinking of VF-102 and the JOs in that all went on to screen and so forth and so on. I mean, thank you Pirate Barbary and, uh, and, and Cooley Vetch, right? It was a better chemistry and we'd sort of aged out through this era I'm talking about. Um, so this is my concern as I hear you describe, you know, not enough numbers to fill X. It's the second and third order consequences that we'll live with that do ultimately
2: affect readiness. Well, and look, we we describe talent, passion, personality as a Top Gun specific kind of mantra. Look, it applies everywhere to every organization. And whether Absolutely. you whether you're in service or you're in a at a bank, or I mean, you could be here at the Naval Institute, right? And and so, no, uh, you, not the Naval Institute. No, no, we it's got you've got Admiral Daly. So yeah, it's awesome.
0: And the board is super. It is, it's, like, yeah. it's fantastic. We love you. guys.
2: So it's one of those things where, but you're right, and it has a very real, very material effect that sometimes you can you can lose sight of when you operate at very high levels of the organization. And that is, to your point, if you, you know, when I immediately came out of my commanding officer tour, I spent three months, as Bill alluded to, in Norfolk uh, as the executive assistant to Vice, or at the time, Admiral, uh, Rear Admiral, Bruce Lindsey, who was uh, Air Lamp. So he owned basically the eastern half of the world's aviation force.
0: It's the second time his name has come up this week in a podcast. So He's a classmate of mine, by the way. Oh, there
2: you go. Yeah. Well, so uh, so Bertie Lindsay, was my boss. He's now the Gray
0: Owl. Or tomorrow he will be the Gray Owl when Ted Carter retires.
2: Fantastic. So uh, one of the things that you saw – so I obviously had written this white paper. I had a a natural longstanding interest in talent management and retention. I'd done a lot of research into what McKinsey, Deloitte, and others who had studied the changeover from boomers to Gen X to millennial and how that affects your stay-go decision and and how different generations – and, of course, you can't put everyone in a bin, but how they perceive things different ways. And and so how do you impact that? So to what you just said about – the dangers and that spiral that can happen as you start to head, I guess you'd say downhill is I asked Navy personnel command because of my boss. I said, Hey, I, we just did a department screenboard. I would like to see the last two years worth of information. We're doing a little research over here. And so I'd like to know not only the numbers, but I want to see basically their records, right? Because there was this assumption that, well, you didn't make the numbers, but everyone we picked of course, naturally is the best. It's not what you found. You found a lot of your, individuals who had been number one in their fleet squadron, who had been number one when they worked their, their first, what they call sea tour, when you're teaching to be a flight instructor, you're doing other, other jobs, that's exactly the person you want to stay in. It's the top gun instructors, the test pilots, the people who are at the top of their game to include, you know, FRS instructors, everybody. And a lot of them were making the decision to get out. And to me, that was the tipping point, if you will, or at least that was the golden nugget to say, this isn't just a numbers problem. It's also a quality problem. And that's where I think that it was very easy up to that point to say, look, we've got enough numbers. As long as we can make numbers, a body's a body. And that's not the case. And one of the things that I remember hearing uh, repeatedly was when the Navy personnel c- command would come and they did what's called a roadshow. They would brief you the, kind of the current state of manpower and naval aviation and where the community is going. And they referred to everybody as inventory. And I just remember being incredibly put off by that. And I approached the uh, individual at the time who was running PERS-43 for naval aviation and just said, look, could you call them at least assets, something positive? You know, you're not like Amazon like boxes. I robot. Right. So you Right. So, I mean, words matter. The way you approach it matters. And to your point about, uh, you know, Admiral Daly and I had had this fun debate going on around 2013-14 when he asked me to walk him through. In fact, the conversation I had with Admiral Daly is what crystallized my thoughts to put into the white paper. And I remember telling him, look, I want everyone in the Navy to want to stay. And he said, no, Buzz, you can't do that. You can't keep everybody. I'm like, I know you can't, but that's the point. Like, I want it to be such a a well-regarded, competitive, top-quality organization where you look upstream and say, I want to be just like that guy or gal above me. This is the best job you could possibly have. Why would I go anywhere else? So there's no impediment to you staying. You want to stay. And then now the Navy gets to make that quality cut, and they get to have selectivity and say, look, I mean, not everyone can stay. But we're thankful that we have the ability to select the best and brightest to stick around. Well, we're
0: out of time, unfortunately. Um, we will have you back uh, when the book comes out. Um, and there's a lot more to talk about with respect to your own decision to stay or get out. And I'm sure that's uh, baked in the book in some form. Um, so we'll look forward to that. Bus, thank you for your years of service on active duty and also your service to the board and your membership and involvement in the independent forum that is the Naval Institute.
1: Thanks very much for that. You bet. Thanks, Ward. Thanks, Bill. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.
0: The Piscini's podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.